Hi, welcome to Cinematic Release. <laughs> I'm your host, Jeremiah. I'm here with my co-host and wife and editor of the site, Koi. Say hi, Koi. Hi. Uh, today's episode's going to be a little bit different. We're not going to be talking about two movies or one movie in particular. We're going to be essentially doing uh, an ongoing conversation about how going to the movies has changed throughout the years. We're not going to be talking so much about the technologies of the movies themselves, like talkies and 70mm and cinema and all that. We're just going to be basically looking at how the style of going to the movies has evolved. The movie-going experience. The movie-going experience. Americans have been going to the movies. Yes. I mean, this isn't to say Europeans haven't been going to movies. We completely understand. Right. But there are is... lovely, lovely French silent films out there <laughs> by What's-His-Face. Uh, Mayu. Yes. So Mayu. Yes. There's uh, a reason my husband hosts this and not me. <laughs> so I think, honestly, you've seen more Mayu films than I have. Probably so, but you know what? I am as high as a kite on my dollar, as much as you can be in coffee. So we're just going to bust this thing out. <laughs> That's how we do it in the Midwest. We're in Los Angeles, you dolt. We are in Los Angeles, but you and I are both deep in the hard Midwest people. But we're still in Los Angeles. This is true. But we brought the Midwest with us. Okay, I can live with that. Alright. So, movie theaters, as we know them, haven't always been around, of course. Mm-hmm. They started off, um, before we had silent movies, which weren't really silent, but we'll get to that in a sec. We had what's called Magic Lantern show, shows. And those were the hell, basically those were the early, early stages of silent movies. They weren't really so much camera projections as they were light projections. Is that like the shadow thing where it spins around and around and around with like the horse going? Exactly. And you had the like ones where you could just sit on the sidewalk, peek into the box. Well, then you had ones that they had on the sort of burlesque and vaudeville stages in which you had those great big emporiums in which people would just fill in, sit in the aisles and everywhere in the uncomfortable seats with the own worst acoustics imaginable and watch this really minuscule light show. <laughs> People were starving for new entertainment. <laughs> I see that. And this, this the early like theaters don't really start to like nineteen ten. Okay, so my question is between that spinny thing that gives you the shadow whatever right. didn't we have like where you it was like a peep show almost where you went and shoved your face into an eye hole and like spun yes, your and arm yes those weren't really even like those were like part of the thing as I talked about earlier just a second ago it was on the sidewalk you paid a guy like a nickel for, and you just look in for cause they went long wait is that that's where we get Nickelodeon yes wait is that a Nickelodeon or is that where we get the word Nickelodeon well, Nickelodeon comes from how much the the silent air between the magic lamp and the silent air, because uh-huh. you would go into not necessarily a theater, but what was basically a storefront that they repurposed into a theater to show you a silent movie. So and, it's like the little in between, right? Because before we had silent movies, you had silent shorts, the okay. Mew stuff. Okay. And since uh, George Mule used to be a magician before he was a filmmaker, his shorts weren't really stories so much as like little pieces of fantasy or fantastical tales that he would put on. There's still like, there was just like 
a beginning, a middle, and an end, but that, there was really no film language to it all. It just set the camera down and play with the possibility of images. Okay. And even then, they weren't very long. They were like maybe five minutes, if that. Okay. And so you had live live entertainment, organists. It, like, going to a Nickelodeon... But you still had to crank it the entire five minutes. No, no, that's something else. That's, we're, we're getting now to the storefront, which is actually where the Nickelodeon actually becomes a Nickelodeon. Oh, okay. See this is saying? why he hosts this. <laughs> now, I could be wrong. But the best of my knowledge, which is limited... Okay, so how much did these cost, though? Well, it's hard to tell before, like, 1920, like 1913 or 14. But in 1910, it was $0.07. Cents. In 1924, it's $0.25. Cents. And if you calculate for inflation, $0.25 cents by today's standards is $3.75. Which is still a steal compared to what we pay for now. That is so cheap. And, what we got, and even then, in 1910, when it was $0.07... Like I said, you got a bunch of things. You got the live, live action entertainment. Mm-hmm. You got the organist there. But again, you didn't just get one. You got like six or seven because the people who ran the theaters had to program the movies themselves because it wasn't just a feature film. That wasn't going to happen until D.W. Griffin came along with Birth of a Nation. And even then, before Griffin, you got Porter to go, you know what? You got a camera here. You can create a language of film. Okay. All right. And so, long, uh, the early Nickelodeon films weren't even really multi-shot films. They were single-shot films. Okay. Does that make any sense? Yes. Okay. And I know the difference between multi-shot and sh- single-shot. I'm just making sure, because sometimes I think people will know something, and then like I don't understand. Okay, explain it for the audience, then. Okay, a single-shot is... Essentially, one shot. There's no cuts of anything. Multi-shot is uh, multiple shots of a one thing with multiple cuts. In the early days of film, this was far and away just too much for us to really figure out. We were just happy enough to set the camera down, let let the camera roll, and just do things within one shot, and then cut to another shot, and then cut to another shot. Okay. And even that might have been pushing it. Okay. Then Edwin Porter comes along and goes, you know what? We can tell stories by cutting, and we can do multiple things using the camera and editing techniques, and we can tell a narrative. And the theater's like, oh, hey, so that means things could be longer. And they're like, yes. And the theaters, for once, are like, yes, we love that, because that means we don't have to program as much. If the things are longer, we don't have to put together nine shorts and figure out how to put them all together so they're not opposite of each other. Like, there's a theme that we can follow. So you don't have one that's a romance followed by a murder mystery, followed by a crime drama, followed by a horror movie. You can have all murder or all love. So back then, you would pay, like, say, in 1924, 25 cents, and you were getting six or seven movies. Uh, Before 1924, yes. Around 1924, not six or seven, but at least two or three. Until D.W. Griffin comes along. Asshole. Well, because Birth of a Nation is like over two hours. And that was mind-boggling to people because we hadn't quite trained ourselves to sit still for that long. I really hate (laughs) that the big leap forward in what we could do with movies 
came from such a racist shit pile. And that's that's the that's the misfortune of Birth of a Nation. It is historically, technologically, and logistically important. It's also morally repugnant. <laughs> and it's one of those weird things. So D.W. Griffin was shocked that people thought this was racist. Oh, I just bet he was. And he even made a film afterwards called um, Intolerance, which was about shock of shocks, intolerance, and about how racism was wrong, but he still couldn't figure out how. Like, to his dying he might day, as well have just made a film called Intolerance, subtitled, But I'm Really Not a Racist. It's basically what it is. It's a beautiful film. It's still... <laughs> uh-huh. I'm just saying, Intolerance is... I would recommend Intolerance over Birth of a Nation, but Birth of a Nation is basically what codified the language of film. He took everything that Porter did and basically put it in one movie. It's what basically what Kurosawa did with Seven Samurai. He took all the tropes that we've seen in other films mm-hmm. and put it in one. Yeah, I get that. It's still just so unfortunate. It is, and I can't get through Birth of a Nation. No lie. <laughs> I haven't even tried watching it. I, I know its significance, right. and I know why it's important. I also know just such in, unfortunate... Well, content. I used to own the VHS copy with Venetian. And like I said, I could never finish watching it. Like, I would get like 20 minutes in, I was like, this is fucking, no, I can't do this. And at the same time, the the scholar is like, you gotta pile film. Like, no, no, I can just read about it. I can just fucking read about it. Yeah, you can. (laughs) And what people don't realize is, both Venetian was racist, even for that time. Like, there were protests. By blacks, of all people. Surprisingly, they were shocked. No one was more shocked by the revolt by blacks against this movie than D.W. Griffin. He was like, what? Gee, I wonder why. (laughs) Okay, so moving back from that movie. Right. When you went in to see a movie at the time, was it like today where you got to go in and then like you were done and the ushers would come in and clear you out or did you get to... Well... We still, like, until the ni- mid-teens and 1920s, movie theaters, like I said, were just storefronts that were repurposed as movie theaters. They set up, like, a little dingy screen. They had a projector. And they would buy the film from the actual, not the studio, but the manufacturer of the film. Okay. And essentially, they didn't have anything to eat. There was no concessions. So you stayed until you got hungry. Well, no. Because oftentimes you had people outside the sidewalks hawking the popcorn or whatever. You had the storefront where the movie was shown was usually flanked by either a soda shop or a grocery store of some kind. So you could buy food going in. And then some people, entrepreneuring people, would sneak into the movie theater and walk down the aisles to sell the popcorn or candy or soda in between movies, because like I said, they were only two or three minutes, five minutes long, so it's not like they had to wait a long time. Right. Not to mention... I bet they were like off-season baseball vendors. They probably were, and the studio owners... Well, not studio, but the movie theater people who owned that little storefront property uh-huh. hated them, because they just littered the storefront. They were noisy. Eating food was noisy. I would have hated that. Yes, you would have. And then when they actually, in the mid-teens and 20s, when they say, you know what we could do? We could make the theater an actual experience. 
Because before we were just talking about like basically folding chairs and a storefront. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Watching these, until, like I said, until D.D.F. and Gifford comes along, these really short fictionalized dramas. And some of them what they call actualities in which they were just like little mini documentaries of people walking around. You have to understand, we had to be taught how to watch movies by people discovering how to make movies. Well, I remember back at, back, way, way back then, it was an experience just to go watch a movie with a train coming towards the That's camera. That's the Great Train Lobby by Edwin Porter. Yeah, didn't that, like, scare the crap out of some people? Supposedly. I don't time? know if that's more urban legend than true, but they were shocked by the fact of motion just coming towards them. Not because of, like, they thought a real train was coming at them, but because psychologically and just in terms of evolutionary, like, your eyes and your brain, an image coming straight for you was not something we had figured out yet. Something right. we had ever experienced before. So it was a jolt. I just don't know if they were, like, jumping out of the way of the drain. Right. Which I've heard stories So it was still an experience. Right. It was like when we first saw, like, 3D. Right. When even then, that was in the 50s, and that was even then people were like, what the fuck is this? This is stupid. Well. <laughs> but there is, in Edwin S. Porter's The Great Train Robbery, which is, by this point, still not a feature length. Mm-hmm. Still just a short. There's even a moment where he faces the camera right at a train robber and he points a gun at the audience and fires. Like, what Porter's doing before Griffin even comes into the play here is showing you that you can make the theater-going experience visceral. Visceral. In terms of what's going on on the screen. Because people were feeling the train coming at them. They were feeling the guy looking at them and firing a gun. Right. Again, this is why... This is all... Porter training the movie-going audience that how to watch a movie before Griffin even comes into play. Okay. And even then, though, the reason why the movies were short is because, like I said, you're not sitting in comfortable chairs. Right. And another reason why people didn't want uh, the people selling the food there, because it was a callback to back when the, the Magic Lantern shows, back in the Emporiums and the Waldville Theaters and the Bolesque shows, the early movie-going audience weren't working-class people. That's a myth. The more and more evidence is coming up that that early movie-going audience were middle-class people. So that's why they, when they started building actual theaters, the movie palaces, they started going for the palace, like the sort of luxurious look to get the people from the suburbs. There weren't many movie theaters in the Lower East Side. They were all in Upper Manhattan. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I didn't know that. That's some really good context. <laughs> well, and then in the mid-teens and the 20s, they start to build what a lot of people remember as the, the luxurious movie palaces. When you go into the LA Live, go to Premier Theater, and they talk about this was designed in the... Golden Age of right. Hollywood. And even then, though, the, the movie palaces <coughs> were architecturally beautiful. But they didn't have stadium seating. Right. Like, you've been to um, the El Capitan. Mm-hmm. Walking up and down those aisles. It's like going to Dodger Stadium. It's one of the older... Stadiums, and so the aisles really aren't made for you to walk through. They're made for you to barely be able to get to the seat and sit down. And I'm, they're not made to have like a armload of like 62 ounces of popcorn and a 48 ounce of Coke and be able to maneuver yourself. Maneuver yourself. It's file your butt in and sit down and watch. Exactly. And even then, movie theaters at this time are still extraordinarily cheap. Right. Um, at the same time, movies aren't just one movies. Now you're getting newsreels. 
and cartoons and little serialized snippets of a show that would show later on. Like, in order to get you to come in, they would have a, not like a show, but like a tiny, like, 10-minute show of a serialized story, like of a super, like of an early comic book type deal. Like, it wouldn't be a superhero, but it would be one of those, like, uh, so it's like a soap opera. Exactly. Except in the movie theater that they keep playing to get you to come back to find out who, who done it. Right. Well, not even that. Like, Doc Savage type stories or the Shadow type stories where you have the lone hero and it would always end with him. The episode would always end with him tied in the backseat of a car going over a cliff. And then the next episode, he managed to escape. And then he gets in trouble again and then it ends with Right. Him. Or the heroine of the piece gets in trouble and he has to rest in the same Rinse, repeat. Right. And so again, this is all what you're getting for your buck. Not just one movie. Sometimes it's a double feature. And other times it's not just a movie. You're getting news. You're getting the news. You're getting cartoons. You're getting all this other stuff. And on top of that, this almost like the thirties, I would think, not even letting people sell food in the theater still, because again, it's messy. Right. The food, the eating of the food is loud. And again. And like they're just movie owner, movie theater owners are just starting to like install canning vending machines in the auditorium. Not to mention all these movie palaces are owned by the studios. This is part of a monopoly that the studios started to create in order to get most of the profit from all the movies. They owned the film. They owned. The film, by film, I mean the actual film they used to make the movie. Right. They own nine times. They either owned the majority of the stock or owned the company outright. They owned the theater where they exhibited. They owned the exhibiting company that would sell the movie. So this is like peak studio interference. Right. Well, at the same time, like, and even then, I talk about these great movie palaces. These were like these weren't everywhere. They were only in major cities. Right. Like L.A., Chicago, Right, and even then, like, your hometown maybe probably didn't have one. Probably had, like, a dingy theater. Mm -hmm. But even then, like, say Gone with the Wind. They would do a thing in which they would take a train across the country and do stops, publicity stops across the country with Clark Gable and all of them coming out, and they would go to Atlanta, and they would go to Mobile, and they would just have all the stops of, like, a big Hollywood premiere screening of Gone with the Wind. Wow. So, basically, not even, like, a wide release. That was a wide release. Right. If you were a star of a movie, you had to do the publicity tour. And you... I mean, I know today we have the publicity tour in the sense, like, you... You do press. You do press, you do some press junkets, you know, like in whatever country, right. and you go and you sit down, and a bunch of people come in and interview you all day, right. or over two days, or however long. And I know we always like, oh, you can tell they hate the press junkets, blah, right. blah, blah, you get these deadpan answers. But realizing that that's all they have to do, versus, okay, well, now we're going to... Cross-country trip for a movie you may or may not have liked. <laughs> Right. Um, that's... Old Hollywood is amazing and both sort of like terrifying in terms of once you start digging into like the stuff that went on behind the scenes. Um, the double feature arose about the 30s when the Great Depression started to hit. 
And because that's, of the studios? Because of the studios, because they started doing what's known as block booking. And that's when they would um, require the theaters that they owned to buy all these other, like, crap low-rent movies along with the A pictures. So you'd have, like, Gone with the Wind and then, like, some kind of trashy pulp detective film. No. No. It would be a trashy, southern, gothic melodrama. Like, they would try to keep the theme... Copacetic with the aimless movies. So, like, if you went to see a John Ford Western, there would be a B-movie Western with it. If you went to see a... After Humphrey Bogart became a big star, there would be a B-movie film noir with it. Okay. So you really had to like that genre to go. Yeah. At the same time, though, in 1925, something happened in movie theaters that really changed everything. Air conditioning. See, I, I'm gonna... It's 1925, let me double check. Go back to, uh, I want to make sure, go to the outline. Uh, it's, in, it's in the 20s, the outline, not the notes. Yes. See, this is where you have a married couple, like, Yeah, 1925, Willis Carrier comes up with the air conditioning. And he goes to uh, Paramount, I believe it's Paramount, and goes, I have this thing that I think is going to revolutionize how we just exist. Because understand, in Washington, D.C., in the summer, the politicians went home, not because of recess, but because it got so fucking hot in D.C., they couldn't stand to be in the buildings. For some reason in my head, we didn't get air conditioning until the 40s, so this is kind of blowing my mind right now, (laughs) 1925. Remember when John Dillinger was shot, the iconic picture is you see above the movie uh, marquee, now with air conditioning. Yeah, I don't remember that photo at all. All right, anyhow. <laughs> so he goes to Paramount, and he goes to uh, Zuka, the uh, the head of the studio. like, I got air conditioning, and I think it's going to revolutionize, A, how we live, and B, if you put in your theaters, you're going to see people show up by the droves. Yeah, because I bet it was too expensive to have in your house. Yeah, at that point. it's kind So at like that this- time, if you were in the summer and you didn't want to sweat your ass off, you went to the only place that had air conditioning. So they went to, um, I believe it was called the Rivoli. Paramount's biggest, most luxurious theater. And everyone was like, it, so- it sounds like it's going to like, it sounds nice, but will the people like it? So they have this big premiere. Zuka shows up and he goes up to the balcony. And after the movie, they're waiting downstairs on his opinion. And he comes down and he just goes, I think the people will like it. <laughs> and so really what you have is in these double features... For this low price of $1.75. You get everything I just told you. And you get air conditioning, which you don't have at home. Not only that, but the Great Depression is starting. People are out of jobs. And you can just stay in the theater. It's $1.75. You just go and you get all this. So... Basically, for buck seventy-five. And this is a, at a good one. Right. At a really good movie theater. Right. Because I remember there were other places, like, you could go see, a, like, a film for 10 cents or something. Right. Actually, it's more like about 4 by four or $5 by today's standards going by. Right. In place so you still had to have some money to go. Right. Like I said, because those movie palaces weren't aimed. At the working class. If you're working class, you're going to, like, the dingy thing, and yeah. you're going to be lucky if you get... Well, you're going to the big movies. You're going right. to do... Because the double features was one A movie and a B movie. 
And then you had others like in the the lower grade theaters with two B movies. So you weren't even getting to see Gone with the Wind. You were just getting to see some knockoff. Right. And also keep in mind, this is before VHS. So if you don't see Gone with the Wind, you don't. You see never it. see Gone with the Wind. So there were people that when Gone with the Wind came out probably died before they ever got to see it just because of where they lived. Right. Because understand, like, and this is something that's really hard to wrap your mind around. For the first 60 years or so, you did, if you didn't see a movie, you didn't see a movie. <laughs> like so it, if you missed The Wizard of Oz, you are basically fucked. And to, unless you were able to catch it on television when they replayed it. If you but were alive. If you could afford a television. And if you did, it's probably on a crappy, air, air, like an early version of television, which is crappy and you can't see Jack on it. So really at that time, movies were must-see because it was either you got to see them or you were pretty much screwed forever. Exactly. And this is part of like, when we talk about a movie-going experience, this is something that, not only that, but because they were cheap, you could see movies more than once easier. Right. Um, and he, if you want, if you really liked it, that was going to be your only chance to see it again. Her name uh, escapes me, but the lady who wrote Gone with the Wind. I just wanted to say Scarlett O'Hara, and I know that's not right. I wanted to say Margaret Atwood, and I know that's not right. Anyways. Anyhow, the lady who wrote Gone with the Wind saw this one particular movie like 12 times. She loved it so much, Margaret Mitchell. There we go. She saw this movie 12 times. Loved it so much that she adapted a stage version of it and would put on versions of that movie in her living room. Making her little cousins, brothers, and sisters put on blackface. Wow. Do you know what this movie was? Please tell me. Please tell me it's not Birth of a Nation. It's Birth of a Nation. Oh my god. This is just turning... Like, Gone with the Wind already had some severely problematic <laughs> elements, but... Well, as Elizabeth has talked about... Um, Goddamn, names uh, just flew out of my head. Zuckerman. Mm-hmm. Or not Zuckerman. Who? Like, who are you talking about? Uh, uh, who Elizabeth has been talking about on the Phantom Mentals. Okay, well, unless you give <laughs> me some background context of the, what... The big studio mogul came up with the 11 le- lessons on how to make a movie. Yeah, I got none for you. Okay. We got to move on. All right. Anyhow, there were, so that's one of the reasons why the actual book of Gone with the Wind is so problematic, mm-hmm. i.e., racist, and why the movie itself has some really glaring issues. Oh. But also understand, this is how art is cyclical. Like it begets art. Like if you want to talk about how racism still exists in movies, True. it's because that's what we have. I mean, that's a really good point. That's where she learned her entire cinematic love or experience was from the most racist movie. Well, not only that, and get off on a bit of a a tangent, Gone with the Wind is also responsible for starting a whole mythology of how the Deep South was. Right. Because plantations were big, but they weren't that big. To the point where, like, the producers, when they were making Gone with the Wind, were like, when they sent people out for location scouting, kept getting letters like, we can't find any plantations the size of the scope mentioned in the book because they didn't exist. Right. Plantations of those size would be economically absolutely unfeasible. But as was established here and further and further on in the movies, the bigger the better. Right. And so basically what it is, well, not only that, but they had 
little like almost romance novels in the deep south called uh, Moonlight Magnolia types, and they would just they started this myth of what the deep south was. <laughs> so, sorry, tangent. All right, so double features, B movies. So during the depression, there's finally someone's like, you know what's not fair? How the fucking studios own everything. Right. So the Supreme Court decides, you know what? You can't do this. You can't just book all this film time and all these films and not allow anyone else. So they basically ruled it was a monopoly. It was. It was part of an antitrust Supreme Court case. Um, if I can't find... Paramount, United States versus Paramount Pictures. Uh, 1948. And that essentially is when the... Studio system, as we know it, starts to collapse. Not the collapse of Hollywood. It's not the collapse of big business. But like the golden age, as we know it, with the studio system. Because the way the movies used to be made were almost an assembly line factory type thing. They were an assembly line factory. Totally. (laughs) Not almost. I mean, they were. Yeah, exactly. I apologize. And by the end of the 1940s, the double features were regal policy at 29% of the American cinemas. And 36% of them were like part-time double features. Because now we're getting into the 40s and 50s in which the movie you have during the day is not the same movie you have at night. And this goes on for like the next 20 or 30 years. I just realized, wait, you'd have like this one double feature and you would play that in the afternoon and the evening, right? Yeah. I just realized, holy crap, it's been this entire time they still didn't have multiple movies they would play. Well, like, they did, but not at the same time. Right. Like, uh, because after, like, once you get into the 60s and 70s, they would, they wouldn't have double features, but they'd have all the, like, the low-grade movies, but they'd play for one night, and then the next week, they'd be gone. Like, uh, like they would show Candleshoe during the day, and say, I spit on your grave at night. Yeah, that's a big And it's, like, for one day, and so you never see it again. The movie-going experience used to be called that because you had to catch the damn movie before it got away. I know. This is kind of like, I think it's finally dawning on me. Like, really, if you didn't see it, you were never going to see it. Well, and going back to them selling food, the concession stand, once they finally sort of like, okay, fine, we can get a cut of this, Mm -hmm. they started including concession stands into the architecture of the movie palaces. But they really... because of the movie studios, they went all out. They had homemade bonbons, like specially made for every like theater. Every theater had like a specialty they had. You know, it feels like we're kind of getting back to that because I remember for a while, like food at the theaters. What crap? It was crap. Like when I was, you know, when we were kids, like in the eighties right. and nineties, it was you had popcorn, you had coke, and you had overpriced candy that had been stale for God knows how long. Exactly. And now, like, you know, here, at least in Los Angeles, you know, we can go to the Arclight. They have a freaking restaurant inside. Well, even in Kansas City, they have an AMC theater. Yeah, where you can, like, do the dining thing. You They'll, can do the dining, yeah. you can get beer, you can get the whole nine hours. Wine or a drink or whatever. You can eat while you're watching the freaking movie. And we'll get to that reason for that here in a sec. Well, not in a sec, but later on towards the end. But... Well, right now we're still in the 40s and 50s. So if you're really rich, you can go and get a bonbon. Right. Well, even then, like, comparatively, it's not that much. 
And by the 40s and 50s, the Great Depression is starting to end. Mm-hmm. So people are going to theaters more and more. Because, hey, now we got the B-Boomy pictures and starting to get more scandalous. Well, there's a whole issue involving the code, pre-code era movies and post-code era movies, which we haven't gotten into because that's an episode totally on its own. Right. And also talkies and colorized and cinerama. Again, totally different episode. Right. This is just about going to the fucking movies. Right. And understand that going to the movies, even during the palaces, you guys complain about cell phones now. But also understand, the way the seating was, there was no stadium seating, so if a tall guy sat in front of you, guess what? You're going to have to crane your neck around him to see a damn movie. Well, I remember even when I was younger, you know, I lived in a rural area and right. we didn't have stadium seating. Multiplexes are relatively new. People forget that. Yeah, it, was, it wasn't until um, Quail Springs Mall in Oklahoma City. They got a big AMC. Right. And that was the first time, I think it was like 14, right. 14, 15, before I ever got to experience stadium seating. But I remember it was like it was all flat, and if somebody tall came up and sat in front of you, you were fucked. Well, not, it was all flat, and it went sort of at a slant. Yeah, very slight slant. And then as, as the years wore on, the slant got a little bit deeper. Still was a stadium seating. I remember um, at uh, Nolan Fashion Square, this weird sort of slant that went down. And it wasn't stadium seating, but you clearly you were going like a little bit diagonal as you went down mm-hmm. to the front of the theater. The floors were sticky because they weren't all carpeted. Right. Because, uh, again, people were just leaving their stuff in, just lying around. Um, teenagers making out and having sex, much more prominent then. I feel like they trained people how to watch a movie, but movie-going etiquette was still a work in process at this time. Yeah, all the way until, like, now. Seriously. Like, it, it's nothing compared to what it used to be. Because movies were so cheap... People didn't really think about just leaving a movie early by going out the fire exit door. So then you got the alarms going off during the movies. During the Great Depression... So you're saying that part of the reason people behave in movies right now is because they're so fucking expensive. Exactly. What? Again, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Okay. Because also remember, what else in the 30s, what is rampant? Poverty. Poverty and joblessness and homelessness. So if you had ten cents, you, you could had go a place inside an air conditioned movie theater for the entire day. Right. Okay. So now you have, and and we're not talking about homelessness like we think about nowadays. Right. A lot of the homelessness nowadays is a mixture of mental health issues, LGBTQ issues, and just lack of jobs. Right. This is more of a just lack of jobs issue. So these are people who are at some. But they're not... Well, this happened at the Great Depression when we had the collapse of the banks. Right. And quite literally, our entire safety net and speculation bubble completely burst. This was before we had the FDIC. Right. Your money, when it was gone, it was gone. And we had that mass panic where everyone went to pull money out and the banks ran out. Exactly. So nobody has any money. All these jobs run up. So... You can't pay your rent. Nobody else is working either. And everything just collapses. Exactly. And again, the homeless people involved then are... Those are vagabonds. There were vagabonds and hobos. And there was a code that they followed. Right. Don't take too much of a handout because the next guy behind you is going to need a handout probably more than you are. So basically, like, take a handout but don't abuse the handout. Mm-hmm. Um, 
if you can't find a job, find a way to use your additional talents or unique talents to do some labor around the community. So it was very much a much different idea of what homelessness is and what we have in our minds today. Right. They, it was as uh, one of us termed the forgotten men. Mm-hmm. The soldiers who went away to fight and came back and had nothing. Right. And so, and even then, like I said, you had teenagers running rampant. I say that meaning you have basically teenagers going to the theaters unsupervised. You think people talking to the theaters is bad now. It was worse then. Part of the reason why people are so much complaining so much about people behaving movies is because now it costs so damn fucking much. Right. And also, but around the 40s and 50s, moving away from the Great Depression, you have two filmmakers, William Castle and Alfred Hitchcock. And now they're going, you know what we can do? We can make going to the movies fun. You know how we're going to do that? In the old days, Hollywood used to have these giant parades to have a premiere of a movie. Well, we're going to do something better. We make scary movies. So scary, they'll probably kill you. I'm so sure it's going to kill you. I'm going to have right here an insurance certificate for $1,000. And if you die of fright of my movie, you can cash it in. So they're the P.T. Barnums of their day. Uh, Hitchcock, a little bit more slightly. William Castle, absolutely. He had a cowless booth set up in the auditorium of a movie, and if you left in the middle of the movie, he'd interview you and put you as part of the trailer. Oh, wow. He, uh, there was a Vincent Price movie called The Tingler, one of my favorites. And the plot of the movie is just this species that lives on your spine. And when you start getting scared, it squeezes your spine, and the only way to... S- to save yourself is to scream, and then that kills the tingler. And so the publicity for this movie was telling you about this thing that could latch onto your spine, and the only way that could save you was to scream. And then William Castle, being the brilliant, beautiful bastard that he was, went to certain theaters and installed a vibrator underneath the seat. Oh my god! <laughs> that, that would go off. diabolical. <laughs> That would go off at random times and people would scream. And then all of them like, why are they screaming? Oh my God, the tingler. That is, di- that is brilliant. But, oh, that is diabolical. So there's a John Goodman movie. I believe it's um, Zuckerman. Poor Scump guy. Okay. Who made a movie called... No, Joe Dante. Joe Dante made a movie called uh, Manet. And John Goodman plays a William Castle type. And just all this cult of Ballyhoo. Hitchcock would have it. If you watch his trailers, he's talking directly to the audience. And watch Psycho. It's like, uh, he's going and taking a tour of the motels. Like, and this is where she was murdered. And this is where he was murdered. Very messy. They've cleaned it up now. <laughs> and it's just basically them going, being interactive with the audience. Mm-hmm. I believe in one of William, I think it was the Haunted House of 13 Ghosts. Castle had rigged up a uh, pulley system on the top of one of some uh, select theaters. And halfway through the movie, there would be a ghost coming towards the screen, and he would release a dummy ghost through the theaters. 3D That's, my ass. This shit I'm was just... I'm a little bit sad we don't get that anymore. Well, I mean, I'm they sure they would be sued. Right. William F. Castle would probably play up the whole, oh, look at me, I'm getting sued, bit. But that's, uh, that's during the great 50s and 60s. Or 40s and 50s, right into about the 60s. And that's when we start getting the sort of dingy theaters. 
Well, I remember, like, especially in the 60s, because we had the rise of Grindhouse Theater. The Grindhouse Theater is in Cincinnati. There's not so much control of uh, the distribution and who shows it. More and more people are able to finance little, little crappy films. And since there's no studio system anymore, you have people going, I just made a film. I'll, let me show it. Uh, I'll let you show for free if I get a cut of whatever the nice proceeds are. Right. So, like, you still have these studio films. Right. But I remember, like, especially in the 60s and 70s with the rise of Grindhouse, because we start getting, oh, you can't show this, you can't show this. But in the Grindhouse films, they're skating right up to that line. And that's the birth of the indie movies, like Quotation, John Cassavetti starts making his movies in and selling them personally to the theaters. Right. And this is, like, you want to talk about rowdy audiences. Yes. This is... 60s and 70s, drugs, alcohol, sneaking all this shit into the theater. You know, like, especially... Especially when we talk about with these Grindhouse films, uh, it wasn't terribly uncommon, especially in certain parts of larger cities right. where these were, to go in and come out completely tripping balls. Going to the movies, especially in the 60s and 70s, is basically like going to Animal House in life. Right. And it's and then, of course, again, it's the... I mean, you still have like your nice grand movie theater palaces, which are still... But they're starting to decay. They're not right. being kept they're, start, they're not being kept up, but they're still there. Right, and it's, I remember I got to see Taxi Driver in the theaters when I lived in New York. And there's a moment where De Niro goes to get some snacks from the concession stand. And the lady's like, okay, that's going to be a dollar seventy-five, And we all just fucking laughed. It wasn't meant to be funny, but we're like, Jesus, what? <laughs> That'd be nice. <laughs> but again... The food and, like, the popcorn and everything, there's really no... It's kind of disgusting. Right. And it's, like, this is, like... The it's th- that mass-produced stuff. Right. And we had that for decades. We have it for decades, but, again, the quality... Because everything's so cheap, the quality's down. Right. This is a weird thing where, like, I know everyone hates capitalism, and I, I'm no fan of it myself, but this is a thing where you get what you paid for. it. Right. <laughs> and because it's so cheap, and because everyone's, like, just trying to churn it out... Because these movies aren't staying in the theaters for, like, longer than a week, because... I think the longest at that point was two weeks, and then it was done. Yeah. If you were lucky. And again, like I said, most of these things are like... We have in LA some of this stuff now. Like, mm-hmm. the movie's playing for one night, so we gotta go see it. Right. The uh, Fathom Events stuff. Right. Well, no, not even Fathom Events. It's like house stuff. Like, there are, like, Belgian films or, like, Brazilian films that are show up for one night for... And not, like, the whole night, but for one night, 7.30, you gotta go... Or like a rock documentary about this punk rock band that no one's ever heard of. Well, I am glad they exist. They are not my thing, but I'm glad that <laughs> they've made a comeback for people who enjoy that. Well, not only that, but like even in the movie palaces, up until this point, we're still not having like anything more than like four or five screens. Right. The multiplex doesn't come around to the 80s cause until the blockbuster comes. Until Spielberg and Lucas... We didn't really, though, I don't even think they came about until... Like, truly, like, they were a staple until the early 2000s. Right, no, but I'm saying, like, once the blockbuster happens... Right. It starts setting the seeds for the idea of... Okay. Maybe have more screens. Because... So, when... It's like the first real kind of blockbuster wave. I think that's sort of kind of like with Star Wars... And Jaws and Late 70s. Right. And that's when people... It's suddenly, it's... Like, it's a cultural event. It's a cultural event. It's always been Movies a... Movies cult- start becoming cultural events. Well, they've always been a cultural event, but now they're making massive amounts of money. Right. More than... And not only that, because, A, 
you're just seeing that one movie. You're not seeing, like, the other movies for it. You're not seeing any real newsreels or anything. Right. We've stripped the newsreels out. By this time, the newsreels are gone. The we cartoons kind of, are gone. Yeah, we kind of have, like... Advertisements are gone. Believe it or not, advertisement used to be a part of movies. <laughs> we have trailers-ish. They're not what we consider them today. Trailers, people, you should go back and watch old trailers. I remember watching an old trailer for, was it, All the President's Men? Yeah. I was like, oh my god. People complain about how trailers give everything away today. Yeah. You go back and watch trailers, all the way back to, like, old Paul Newman movies, they tell you every fucking twist and turn. You know what you're going into. But I remember, like, about that time, though, everything was stripped away except for just that movie. Right. You had, like, you had, they, they still had trailers, but it wasn't to the extent that we have them now. Right. But at the same time, like, them bumping up the number of screens to, like, maybe once or twice. Like, one or two. Then I, right. And still, everything, nothing's really changing on the base level how a movie theater operates, except how much money the movie theater's making. Right. Because that's when all of a sudden they're like, you know what? This is making a lot of money. We're that, not. The longer the movie stays in this theater, the more money we make and the less money the studios make. Mm-hmm. So that's when they start going, you know what? Let's keep it. Let's keep running this until this fucking thing goes into the ground. That's why I use, That's why Get Out is still in theaters right now. In certain theaters. And so, well, yeah. It's still playing at LLA. I did not realize that. Yeah. Uh, movies, because the more money the movie makes, the longer it stays out, the more money the theater makes and the less money the studio makes. Okay. There's a ratio that starts to happen, starts to change over the period of time. Okay. Whereas concessions, they get all the money. Right. Um, but the, when the multiplex start happening, it's when they start going to not just six or four or five screens, not even six or seven screens. Because I remember, even in high school, Harrisonville, the mall, the mall in Harrisonville, the Harrisonville four had four screens, and we used to think that was dinky, while the Belden one had six that was... <laughs> See, you grew up in the Kansas City area. Right. Here's the thing. Where I grew up, having a four-screen multiplex was a big freaking deal because you only had a twin. Right. So we would go 20 miles to the next town to where we had a Cinemark, and it had four freaking screens. We should briefly talk about drive-ins and the fact that they kept the double feature going long past the theaters because they were cheap to acquire, and people will have no problem getting drunk and going outside to watch a movie. <laughs> problem is, if you've ever been to a drive-in, depending on which one you go to, I personally haven't, but when you look at the technology... It's ancient. It's ancient, and it's really hard to hear, yeah. and it's all about the experience. I want to go to a drive-in one day, but we don't have a car, so it makes no sense to go. No, you don't. You won't be able to hear it, honey. That's uh, true. Okay, a little bit of context. Jeremiah is hard of hearing. <laughs> Literally. And literally, like literally hard of hearing. And having been to a drive-thru before... Drive in. Close enough. I've been to a drive-thru. I used to work the drive-thru. Okay, that's good for you. Um, and having been through a drive-in before, and when they came out, and they'll put this little box in here. I've been to two. I've been to both methods. Right. Where you either tune in to a particular station that plays the audio, mm-hmm. which is really freaking spotty. <laughs> or they come in and they set in a little tinny speaker. Right. Which is, the quality's not good. It's scratchy. Right. You can only turn it up so high. For you, your enjoyment would be very minimal. Gotcha. But my enjoyment was very minimal. Even before, like, the multiplexes. 
theater started to gradually move up a little bit in terms of how nice the theater became. Right. I remember at the Independence Square, they had a sort of spiral staircase that led up to the bathrooms. Like, movies were still single-story, but they wouldn't be a double-story, but not for the theaters themselves, but for, like, bathrooms or concession stands. They would have a chandelier or a sort of faux chandelier. Mm-hmm. I remember across, you had the Independence Center and the Town Square Cinema, you had the theaters, and then you walk outside right into the video arcade. I remember the cin- Cinemark. Carmike? No, it was a Carmike. Right. They had video games yeah. inside the theater. In the 80s, they started bringing video games to bring in the youth. Because you, you came in to watch Star Wars, you could stay and play video games. Right. Yeah, that worked. Yeah, no, it didn't. It started becoming, again, absolutely annoying because we can get a large group of teenagers together. Right. They won't shut the fuck up! <laughs> but, I mean, at this point, you know, we're well in the 80s. Right. Movies are starting to play for longer. Yes. They're starting to twig onto the fact that if we make this an experience right. again, as opposed to just, like, you know, conveyor belt them. Right. Well, AMC starts to come out with the multiplex. Right. And AMC had been ahead. AMC started just basically buying up theaters. Because I remember Blue Ridge, the, Blue Ridge had the Blue Ridge Mall Theater, and across the highway you had the Blue Ridge Theater. And they were both... Owned by AMC, but they want like part of the signage. That makes any sense. And then eventually, they became AMC. Okay. And then the multiplexes started to happen. And then when the multiplexes started to come in, that's when you started getting stadium seating. That's when you started getting IMAX. And if you notice, that's when the ticket prices really started to shoot up. Right. And also, if but you, you know, had to pay for the nice things. You had to pay for the nice things. And also, if you notice, the audiences starts to behave a little bit more because now this is fifteen twenty bucks a pop. Right. This isn't just three dollars. Let's go with Joe and Jack, and other J names, and do things. Right. Like you're. I mean, for us, when we go see movies, because Jeremiah also reviews them for the site. When we go see movies, I mean, it is not cheap. It's half a day's pay. Right. Like we when we saw Suicide Squad, and we saw it in the Premier Theater and the LA Live. Yeah. Regal. That was fifty dollars for two people. Because we saw it in 3D. We saw it in 3D in the premier theater. $50. And also, well, that's why people are starting to get unhappy with movies and the quality of it. Because now we're shelling out for an experience. Yeah, we're shelling out literally half a day's or an entire day's worth of pay. Right. And that's just for two people. We're not even talking about people with families. Yeah. I mean, this is just two of us. Right. So if we're having to pay, you know, half a day's wages just to go watch a movie. That movie better be fucking good. Right. And so now people are taking less of a chance on movies they don't know anything about because, again, it's expensive. But at the same time, though, like we talked about this earlier, I'm paying, you know, I worked my ass off. Right. And now I'm having to pay out nearly an entire day just to go have this experience. I want people around me to shut the fuck up so I can see and watch it. Exactly. And I think everybody else does, too, because you're paying out the nose for this. Well, so, And that's why we get so pissed off when somebody's, like, on their phone right. and they're talking really loud. But I, I understand all of that. I'm just able to block that out and focus on the movie. But when people talk, that's when I start shushing people. Mm. I had to do that at the beginning of the Alien Covenant. A couple of jackasses beside me were talking all through the opening credits. And I was like, shh. Finally, the, for some reason, the third shh. 
have enough menace in it to shut them up. I don't know. Well, I mean, I know. I You've seen me. I get peeved if people are talking even in, like, the trailers. Right. Well, so do I. And that's why I like the Arclight, because they they only show three trailers, and they cut off ticket sales on it. enough time where right. if people were coming in, they were already bought their tickets. Well, if I go to LA Live, I got morons coming in, like, 20 minutes after the film started. But at the same time, though, you want to talk about a film-going experience? I do think we have to mention really quick, the location of where you go... Really plays into it. Right. Because... If I'm going to go to a blockbuster, I still want to go to, like, L.A. Live. Right. Because that audience is coming in, and they are pumped to see that movie. And the stadium stadium has now infiltrated everything. Right. Um, not only that, movies are still oddly democratic. It's the one thing where no matter what movie you see, you pay roughly the same price for the crappy movie. Right. So, because you don't know. Like, you, a big-name rock concert is going to be more expensive than a local band traveling through. Right. But a big name movie, it's going to be roughly on par the same price as an indie movie, unless you're seeing it with all the stops pulled out. Right. So, like, you know, we go to the Arclight if there's, like, a smaller movie playing. Right. Just because normally the Arclight in Hollywood is showing it. Right. But, and I say this again, if I want to go to, like, a big movie like Star Wars, The Force Awakens... L.A. Live is absolutely, for me, the venue to see it in. Oh, absolutely. Because you had the same group of people amped and in there and cheering and hollering for everything. And it was just this magical experience. And I love the Arclight. I do. Right. It's a different crowd. It's a different crowd, but also at the same time what we're talking about is the experience. The money we put into what we want this movie to be. So when someone talks or someone texts on the cell phone, what we're responding to is... Hey, I get that you pay, but I pay too. How are you not paying a fucking attention? Right. <laughs> Do you not have any, like, there are some movie critics who are instituting a code of ethics or etiquette for how to behave in movies, and I think that might be going a little bit too far. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, yeah, no, stadium seating, that's a huge deal. IMAX, I remember when IMAX wasn't a normal thing. I remember when I saw Star Wars Episode Two: Attack the Clones, I had to go I'm to the sorry. fucking Kansas City Zoo to see the IMAX. Because I wasn't playing at the local that. multiplex yet, because IMAX wasn't a thing, and now almost every major multiplex has at least one IMAX screen. Right. Or now they're even coming out with, like, the 4DX experience. Right. That's just going nuts. Yeah. Some of us have motion sickness. We can't <laughs> handle that. Yeah. Some, and not only that, but I'm like, just show me the movie. Don't put me in the movie. Right. Well, you just went on about how... Wait. The, the, the movie should put pull me in. I don't need the chair swiveling okay. up and down, all that, or... Someone spitting on me to make me feel vain. Okay. <laughs> that's nuts. I don't know if you actually pay for someone to spit on you. Some people do. That's a different thing. But we're going to back that up because we don't need to go into there on this topic. Um, we are running out of time, though. Okay. So we got to wrap up. Essentially, that's, in a nutshell, the evolution of the movie-going experience. We want to know what your movie-going experience was when you were younger. Like, when you were a kid, when you were a teenager, or when you were even into college student, or even if you are a college student right now, we're going to have a thread in our forums that we're going to have attached to the um, article for this podcast on the fundamentals. And, you know, we want to know what it was like for you when you were Do you remember a time before the multiplex? Do you have... Because as you've heard me and my wife talk about, Corey talk about... We remember the names of the small theaters we went to. Yes. And they weren't the AMCs. They were called by the location, Nolan Fashion Square. The Harrison Film Mall, you said. 
I said Carmike. Carmike, right. It was a chain, but it was still Carmike. It was a small chain. Right. And I'm not saying the city it was from, but... I mean, we want to know what it was like for you guys. Did you guys grow up, you know, like I did in a small town, or did you grow up in a larger place like Jeremiah did? Were you young enough that, you know, we didn't have the multiplexes? Or even if you did grow up and multiplexes were all you knew, you know, we want to know what that was like. Well, not only that, but just real quick, one of the reasons why the experience is so important now is because now we don't have to go to the movies to see the movie. Yeah, we're starting, that's starting to be irrelevant. Right, like if we, having to see this movie in theaters... Most movie reviewers now have part of a rating system of don't go by the scene at theaters or rent it or right. wait to see it online for free. Right. But we still want to know what your experience yes, is. Sorry. And also, I mean, yeah, on that same token, though, like, tell us, if there's a movie that you're on the fence now, are you going to sp- spend your money on it or are you going to wait? Right. You know, it, I mean, it's something we have to think about now it, because it is so expensive. It is expensive and it is part of the budget when you make a budget. Yeah, so, you know, tell us this. Tell us, you know, what was it like for you as a kid? And tell us now what your movie habits are. Are you going to go see it or are you going to wait? Also, um, go ahead. Don't. I'm not the only podcast we have. Yeah, we have other podcasts as well. Um, the I, I host one with Elizabeth, and it is decidedly lady-loving oriented <laughs> called Ladies First. We also have Unabashed Book Snobbery, which is Kylie and Julia, and they do a lot of salt talking on Game of Thrones, especially. Which seems to be the only type of talking to do. Yes. And then um, also there's Kylie Gretchen and Julia have The Fandamentalist, and they kind of talk all things fandom. So every episode with that is a treat, and it's something different. So we urge you guys to uh, check those out as well. And also, don't forget to um, review and subscribe to us on iTunes. Yes, we're going to be on iTunes now. Yes, we are. So, we greatly appreciate um, if you just pop in and do that. Also, do help us out. check out my social media, uh, Jeremiah O. Sherman at Facebook, or J. Sherman Fiction at Twitter. I do movie recommendations every Wednesday. So, if you want any kind of recommendations, I try to keep it in theme to what's going on in the world or what I feel like. And, you know, just feel free to spam him, too. Or it's that. not like he's doing anything. I'm not. I spend <laughs> most of my time doing nothing. I'm going to get in trouble for that. Uh, we're going to wrap that up now. Uh, yes. Thanks again for tuning in. We'll be back next time with another topic. Uh, Yana will be here to talk about Jackie Brown. That's right. We're that having a, a, a special guest. Yes. Uh, another fundamentalist writer, Yana, is going to be in. So stay tuned for the next episode. And again, review, subscribe. Review and subscribe. Thanks for listening, everyone. This has been Cinematic Release. Have a good one.